You are now listening to the Autoimmune Doc Podcast with Dr. Taylor Crick. Dr. Taylor is an expert in helping those suffering with autoimmune disease, and he himself has autoimmune disease. Autoimmunity is rampant today. The purpose of this podcast is to educate about the underlying causes and natural solutions to halt autoimmune disease progression. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. For more information from Dr. Taylor, visit www.autoimmuneeducationacademy.com. Without further ado, here's your host, Dr. Taylor Crick. Welcome to the Autoimmune Doc Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Taylor Crick, and I love breaking down and explaining the mechanisms behind autoimmunity and chronic disease. Today, we are continuing our conversation into the brain, and we're just seeing just a tremendous rise in the already rising prevalence of brain disorders. And, you know, there's things like autism that are described as a hockey stick graph where the rise in the prevalence is just going up so sharp that it looks like a hockey stick when you graph it out. And I'd say the same thing about anxiety and some other you know brain disorders that we're experiencing today. So part one was last episode. So if you missed last episode, go back and listen to that. And then was, there's also some other things you know that I linked in the show notes, some other episodes about neuroinflammation, um, about mast cells, about LPS, about just some different things, you know, brain function wise that I've done in the past. Today's episode is going to be about neurotransmitters. So just diving into just kind of each neurotransmitter just a little bit and just some of the things behind it and some of the things you can do and some of the signs and symptoms for, you know, what your target neurotransmitter might be. I'm going to talk about, you know, symptoms for adults. I'm going to talk about some symptoms for kids, some pretty cool things. Um, and just go into each neurotransmitter. So those being uh, serotonin, acetylcholine, dopamine, epinephrine and norepinephrine, and grouping those together, and GABA, and go through their basic functions and symptoms and stuff. So uh, last episode was brain overview. And I went through some things uh, like what a healthy brain needs. This is a, a sheet that I just kind of made up one day. Um, for a patient, just to talk through with a patient who, and it was like a teenager. Um, so, and, and here they are. So I, there's nine things, I think, uh, because I've also turned this into like, if you've ever seen like a wheel, like an eight spoked wheel. So I had to kick one of these things off. And what a wheel is, is, you know, you plot each one of these things on a spoke of the wheel, and then you can grade yourself of where you're at or where your needs are at. And kind of say, okay, this is where my focus needs to be for a healthy brain. But here are some of the things that a a healthy brain needs. Number one is appropriate neurotransmitter activity. So that's what we're going to talk about today. That's dependent on many things. It's dependent on hormones. It's depending on stress. It's depending on having the right building blocks for those neurotransmitters. It's dependent on healthy emotional states. You know, you can burn those neurotransmitters out in different ways we'll talk about. It's dependent on habits. It's dependent on sunlight, circadian rhythms. Exercise is really important. So it's dependent on many things. Uh, Gut health we're going to talk about. So all those things are really important for this appropriate neurotransmitter activity. But today we're going to talk about how you know maybe which neurotransmitter you need to target or just some other thoughts and considerations into solving your own brain puzzle. The next one is abundant oxygen. You need good blood flow. So one of the number one signs for this is like cold hands and feet, uh, Raynaud syndrome, things like that that indicate that you don't have good vascular uh, just integrity. 
And so you need good oxygen. You need good blood flow. You don't want to be anemic. Uh, you don't want to be B12 anemic, pernicious anemia either. Uh, and you want good oxygen usage and good oxygen flow to the brain. The next one is you want a steady fuel source. So you want balanced blood sugar and or ketone production. The brain loves ketones as a fuel source as well. But you don't want any hypoglycemia and you don't want any insulin resistance. The next one is adequate methylation. So methylation is very, very important. And today I'll talk a little bit about methylation and just some of the genes because methylation is important for neurotransmitter production. But that, that requires things like B vitamins, SAMe, choline, magnesium, um, and just, you know, there's different genes, you know, that, that can affect that. MTHFR is the most famous one, as we always talk about, but also things like MAO, COMT, PEMT, um, HNMT, all of these, the M stands for methylation or for methyltransferases or, you know, something involved with methylation and neurotransmitters. Uh, the next one, proper lipid morphology. So lipids are increasing your omega-3s. So like, for example, I saw somebody yesterday who has some brain symptoms and who had done a omega check. Um, I don't think we, we use Cleveland Clinic. Hers was, I think, Boston Lab or something like that. But it showed an increased need for DHA, which is really, really important for the brain. So increased omega-3s and DHA, which is especially important for the brain, Decrease omega sixes in many cases, or phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylcholine, um, or other phosphatides, phosphatidylethanolamine, uh, phosphatidylinositol. Those make up our cell membrane. So your brain is largely made of a lot of fat, and there's you know you need cholesterol for steroid hormones, and so you want proper lipid morphology for good brain function. The next one is healthy stimulation. So learning fun visual complexity, doing things like memory games, again, learning, learning a language, learning a skill, learning an instrument, reading, emotional connections with other humans, exercise, and, and not, not doing things that can be detrimental to the brain like social media, video games. Um, you know, those are okay to a degree. I don't think that, that it's the end of the world with just the way the, the direction that the world's going these days, but it's not my favorite thing. And I do think that it can be detrimental to the brain. And it's something that I like to limit in my kids for sure. Uh, the next one's hormone balance. So estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, cortisol, those are steroid hormones. You also need thyroid hormone for brain function. Very important. And then gut brain connection. So uh, addressing dysbiosis with probiotics or addressing infections like candida or SIBO or E. coli or, you know, Yersinia or whatever, the H. pylori, eliminating food sensitivities in some cases, increasing vagus nerve activities, gut-brain connection. So all those things are, are really, you know, important for just healthy brain function. And then uh, healthy circadian rhythms too. So those help set your hormone rhythms, so set your neurotransmitter rhythms. So I think that all those things are really, really important. Another one that's not on here that's just important for a healthy brain that I think is important for today is chronic stress. So let's jump into these neurotransmitters and start talking about chronic stress as we start getting into some of these details. So that is one of the things that can really you know, mess up a brain and mess up these neurotransmitters is chronic stress over time. It can just lead to, you know, depression, anxiety, bipolar, just some of these chronic states 
that you know we, we know so many people that get kind of stuck into. And so there is a difference between cortisol, which is a stress hormone, which is often measured, and we hear a lot about adrenal fatigue or HPA axis dysfunction or, you know, whatever the case is, and epinephrine and norepinephrine. And what I'm seeing more today is if you could draw like a triangle, and at the top of this triangle is the sympathetic nervous system. So this is HPA axis activation and sympathetic nervous system activation, so that fight-or-flight response. And then at one of the bottom corners of the triangle are the adrenal glands, which release cortisol, but also epinephrine and norepinephrine, otherwise known as adrenaline and noradrenaline. So that's a peripheral release of this stress response. And then on the other side of the triangle, you have the brain and the catecholamine-releasing neurons of the brain, which are catecholamines, are epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, uh, those are, are catecholamines, and those are stress neurotransmitters. And there can be an imbalance between that triangle. And so what I'll see is people that have, quote unquote, adrenal fatigue, like they're tired and they can't get out of bed in the morning and like their, their symptoms suggest low cortisol, but they also have these like adrenaline dumps and these like this brain kind of anxiety, like stimulation, like kind of like a tired and wired, which is tired in the morning and wired at night, or, you know, they just have anxiety hit them out of nowhere. And so there's an imbalance in this stress response. So cortisol can sometimes act as a, as a gas pedal, you know, as a stress hormone, but it can also act as a brake pedal too. And a lot of people will get more adrenaline dumps or adrenaline fl- uh, flushes or whatever you want to call them at night when cortisol is really low. And like, especially in the middle of the night, even like one to four in the morning when cortisol is at its all time low, and then they'll get like blood sugar drops and that can contribute to adrenaline dumps and things like that. So chronic stress, you know, we can't talk about neurotransmitters without talking about the stress response. Another part of the stress response that's just good to talk about with all neurotransmitters is just like the, the way that I describe neurotransmitters is there are two neurons that are communicating. And so it's like there's a pitcher and a catcher in baseball. Or if you're like soccer, there's, let's say there's a kicker and a goalie. And so let's say there's a penalty kick or something, you know, there's one kicker and one goalie. And so the neurotransmitter is the, the difference. So in one sport, they're communicating using a baseball. And in the other sport, they're communicating using a soccer ball or a football. So that's the difference with neurotransmitters, but you can, you have, you know, there's two parts to that. One is the release, and then the other is the uptake, which is the, uh, uh, you know, the catcher end of things. And you can have sensitization, and, and you can have sensitization of certain areas, like you can have sensitization of, let's say, the amygdala, which we'll talk about more in the next episode when we talk about brain regions, but that's the fear-sensing area. So you might have stress neurotransmitter, like adrenaline sensitization of the amygdala, where it is like more sensitive because you've been through that fear-based response before. Like let's say you've had some kind of a, a PTSD response that is easy for that to be triggered again. So there's sensitization, there's amplification, there's reuptake of neurotransmitters. There's many 
mechanisms to this. And I'm not, you know, again, I mentioned this last time, of course, but I'm not a neuroscientist. Um, I'm more talking about like clinically, like what helps sick people get well. And so that's what we're going to get into with even some of these symptoms and some of these, you know, potential solutions, I think, also. So the next thing I want to talk about is, uh, first off, let's say gut, gut, gut. So a, a healthy gut is really important for a lot of neurotransmitter production. And, and there is a difference. And, and it's not completely understood, uh, even for somebody that, you know, understands it a lot. Between central neurotransmitters, meaning in the brain, and, and you know, those, those can't be tested through like a, a urine test. Now, there are metabolites and breakdown products that can kind of indicate some of those functions because they've got to be getting broken down and gotten rid of. But a urine neurotransmitter test can't test those. But there's also peripheral neurotransmitters. And you can give people, you know, cer- certainly certain uh, nutraceutical supplements, and you can certainly see their moods change in this way. So there is a difference between central and peripheral. But anyway, the gut is really important for a lot of neurotransmitter production, a lot of uh, dopamine metabolism, tryptophan metabolism, which is going to be serotonin and and 5-HTP, tyrosine metabolism, and just the absorption of all the the building blocks, which are typically, you know, amino acids, the building blocks for these neurotransmitters. So gut health is just absolutely crucial to neurotransmitter function and production and metabolism. Um, So, you know, along with chronic stress, you got to talk about gut, gut, gut. Then the last thing before we get into the specifics uh, is genetics. And you don't need to know your genetics, but if you do, it can explain some of your neurotransmitter tendencies. And there's a lot of genes that are involved with this. And a lot of it is methylation and part of your methylation puzzle. Now, a lot of times, genetics can be more confusing for somebody than, than not knowing. Because if you really get to know all your genes, one will say to avoid methyl B12, and another will say to encourage methyl B12. And one will say to avoid uh, folic acid, and another will say to encourage it, or, you know, not folic acid necessarily, but let's say L5-MTHF, and another one might say to discourage it. So they can get kind of confusing, but what, what I will tell people is like, hey, there's a methylation piece to your puzzle, and, and knowing your genes can help us maybe give us some clues into solving that, But there's a lot of trial and error in methylation. And in general, things to support methylation include B vitamins. But again, there's different forms of B vitamins. There's methyl Bs, there's unmethylated Bs, there's hydroxy B12, there's adenocobalamin. Um, There's all kinds of different forms of B vitamins and, and, you know, folinic acid along with folic acid along with folate and L5-MTHF. And there's SAMe, which is really important. There's choline, which we'll talk about later. So uh, I think that genetics can be helpful, but they don't solve the whole puzzle when it comes to especially like your history and the stressors that you've been through. And you know they might say why you've been predisposed to something. But here are some of the big ones: MAO, uh, monoamine oxidase, um, COMT. COMT is really important for that. The sense for catechol. O-methyltransferase. So catechols are, again, catecholamines, dopamine, um, 
uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine. Uh, dopamine beta-hydroxylase is another one that's just really important. That converts dopamine into adrenaline and, and noradrenaline. So uh, sometimes people will have slow-acting dopamine beta-hydroxylase, and maybe they have fast-acting COMT, and like there can be some major, major imbalances in some of these genetics. And sometimes they can be triggered by gut things like clostridium metabolites can trigger like a dopamine beta-hydroxylase block. And it can really, really, really cause a lot of symptoms. Um, another one's PEMT, which is uh, makes phosphatidylcholine. Um, and we're going to talk about acetylcholine, but there's, there's BDNF is a, would be another, certainly another brain gene that you could have SNPs in. There's, there's a lot of genetics that could be involved in neurotransmitter metabolism. But let's talk about these neurotransmitters and kind of what some of the signs are, what some of the involvements are, and maybe what some of the building blocks are too. And then I'm going to talk about uh, how to evaluate this even in kids because it's a really cool thing. And, and some, a lot of this, again, comes from my mentor, Dr. Karazian. Um, you know, I've taken uh, hundreds of hours of continuing education from Dr. Karazian. So a lot of the brain education that I have um, comes from him. So the first one to talk about is serotonin. So this activity is in the prefrontal cortex, which, again, we'll talk more about the regions next time. But serotonin is probably the most famous because of antidepressants and selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Now, the the SSRI theory has been, you know, highly questioned, if not debunked, but they do have an effect on on people's mood. I I, I do think, but. Um, I don't know, the, it's not low serotonin that necessarily causes all depression. But I do think that that's a lot of the symptoms that you do see. And I would say that even taking things like 5-HTP or taking things that can support kind of serotonin metabolism um, can absolutely have a shift on somebody's mood. So there's certainly something to serotonin and mood. So some of the symptoms for low serotonin are a loss of pleasure in hobbies and interests. Um, so that's just like kind of general depression, right? Uh, feeling overwhelmed with ideas to manage. Like, oh my gosh, I just have so many ideas, I, I can't manage it. Feeling just kind of easily overwhelmed. Which also, you know, we're going to talk about all these. So like, sometimes I'm going to say something, you'll be like, oh, that's me. But then when I talk about GABA, you're going to say the same thing. So sometimes you're shooting at the almost the right target, but you have to take all of this into account and just general big picture also. Um, feelings of inner rage or unprovoked anger that's reduced serotonin that could also be dopamine you know uh, kind of even mold rage type things feelings of paranoia a feeling of sadness a loss of enjoyment a lack of artistic appreciation feelings of dependency on others um, and so like just kind of general depression I would say so you know some of the questions are, it might be also like how often do you have difficulty falling asleep because serotonin turns into melatonin how often do you feel more susceptible to pain? How much are you losing interest in life? How often do you feel down when there when the weather is dark outside? You know, if there's overcast weather or whatever. So those are serotonin questions. Now, one of the most important things to understanding serotonin is the kynurenine pathway, which is triggered by things like neuroinflammation. It can also be triggered by cortisol and stress. But the kynurenine pathway is a tryptophan metabolism pathway. Tryptophan 
can either, it can go two ways. And it's activated by this gene called IDO. But it, tryptophan is like what's in turkey that people will say, you know, makes us tired because turkey's high in tryptophan. But tryptophan can go down this pathway towards 5-HTP, 5-hydroxytryptophan, uh, which is the building block for then serotonin and melatonin. So even from a supplement standpoint, 5-HTP can help somebody build serotonin and build melatonin and, and bypass this kynurnine activation. But when the kynurnine pathway gets activated, then tryptophan can go the other direction. And it can lead to several things. It can lead to NAD depletion, which leads to fatigue. And it can also lead to neuroexcitation, which is a NMDA activation, which we're going to talk about when we get to GABA, because GABA and glutamate can cause neuroexcitation. So you can get like all three things. You can get fatigue. You can get sleep or mood abnormalities, or you can get kind of like anxiety and neuroexcitation from the kynurnine pathway. So that's, I think, really, really important just even in the context of like if your neurotransmitters are imbalanced, you could take 5-HTP and you could, you know, do other things, take GABA. But if you're neuroinflamed, then you've got to calm down that neuroinflammation or look for the root of that neuroinflammation. B6 B6 can also be helpful for this uh, kynurnine pathway. So there are different supplements that you can can take for this magnesium. B6 um, are some of the most effective from a supplement standpoint. And then like things for GABA, things like NAD or, or niacinamide or uh, B3. Um, or you could take 5-HTP. This is also why I, I discourage tryptophan as a supplement. Because you could be fueling down this kynurnine pathway, whereas if you do 5-HTP, you're kind of bypassing that. Um, but that's, that's serotonin, so that's the first neurotransmitter. The second one I'm going to talk about is acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is an interesting one, um, it, and it is associated with like working memory, and it's associated with Alzheimer's and you know a, like acetylcholine deficiency. But I think it's also interesting because, you know, I see I do a lot of work with just like vagus nerve stuff and, and vagus nerve activity and like gut brain connection. And acetylcholine is the primary nerve or, or neurotransmitter rather of the vagus nerve. So a lot of people will have like gut issues and also have like starting to have like memory issues as well. And we can kind of presume excuse me, they have low or reduced acetylcholine levels or acetylcholine activity. And there's things that we can take or things that we can do to help support acetylcholine activation. In fact, at, at Apex seminars, I always joke and tell patients that they will give out their acetylcholine support supplement in the morning when you get there so that your brain's sharp and you remember everything that you learned in your like continuing education seminars. So some of the symptoms of reduced acetylcholine activity are a decrease in like visual memory, a decrease in verbal memory or what's called working memory, um, occurrence of memory lapses, a decrease in creativity, a decrease in comprehension, difficulty calculating numbers. You know, I had a patient recently who said, uh, you know, I was calculating some numbers and it made my brain hurt. And, it, and you know, as I thought about it afterward, it was like, oh, that's acetylcholine. We need to support 
her acetylcholine, and she said that no, that used to come easy for me. So based on some of the symptoms that she's experiencing, we need to support her acetylcholine as we kind of also, you know, look for root causes and things like that. Another thing, again, with acetylcholine is that it's the primary nerve of the vagus nerve. So that's a parasympathetic. So a lot of times if people are just like stuck in sympathetic dominance, they're stuck in fight or flight, maybe their vagus nerve, maybe their brake pedal just doesn't work. And then they're also going to have maybe like gut stasis or constipation or, you know, something, some kind of decreased bile flow or they've had their gallbladder removed or they've got stomach acid imbalances or something along those lines. Now, choline is the building block for acetylcholine. And again, I mentioned earlier PEMT genes. I have uh, homozygous, meaning double mutation uh, in a PEMT gene, which when you have mutations in PEMT genes, you need more choline to make phosphatidylcholine and your body can steal it from acetylcholine or it can steal it from cell membranes to make acetylcholine. And so it's like there's a there can be choline steal and choline's also a methyl donor too. So for somebody with a genetic mutation, you need more choline, which comes from egg yolks and beef liver and 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 red meat. Um, but you just you need more to have good acetylcholine function. So and a lot of supplements will have like alpha GPC. Alpha GPC is a choline, which is a, a really good way of building acetylcholine and supporting acetylcholine. Um, another thing that's in a lot of supplements is Hooperzine A uh, and Vinpocetine. Those are all good for acetylcholine function um, and supporting that. And so is just straight up choline or phosphatidylcholine as a supplement. Uh, da, 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 da. Let me flip the page. Uh, the next one is dopamine. That Dopamine is really famous, I think, and really important. And I have, again, dopamine genes like COMT. I have double homozygous, meaning plus, 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 um, in two COMT genes. And that's very, very common. And you can have two different types. You can have multiple combos of mutations. But... And there's a combo, too, of like, you know, COMT genes with VDR genes, which are vitamin D receptor genes, and then the kind of like even um, um, the the kind of B12 that, that's the best for you, you know, whether it's hydroxy or it's adeno, um, or all if all three are good for you, but just different mutations that kind of combine and say, hey, these supplements are going to be better for you or not. But dopamine is a really important one for you know, a lot of things. And I've always been intrigued by dopamine. I always, I'll tell people like, you know, I don't know this. Sometimes I feel stupid saying this, but I've studied dopamine for like over a decade and I still don't understand it completely. And there's so much info out there, you know, there's Huberman Lab podcasts and there's Chris Masterjohn podcasts and like Jack, Jack Cruz talking about dopamine and how sunlight builds dopamine. And then there's different genes. And then there's sometimes people that have low dopamine symptoms, but they actually have high dopamine and dopamine excess because of dopamine beta hydroxylase is not functioning. And there, there's all kinds of like, I don't know, just confusion on dopamine, but dopamine controls things like pleasure, focus, mood, addiction, 
Um, and a lot of people with dopamine issues are like, I'm a skier that likes to, you know, I actually, let me tell you about my son. My son's four and he's in this like tumbling class. And my wife picked him up the other day and the the guy that teaches it is called Mr. John. And he said, excuse me, ma'am. She said, Brighton likes to, he likes to go big. He likes to go fast and he likes to, oh no. He said, Brighton is a daredevil. He likes to go big and he likes to go fast. And she said he gets that from his dad. And that's dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. Um, it's also a lot of focus. It's also a lot of ADHD or like hyperactivity too. Some of the symptoms of low dopamine are like feelings of worthlessness, feelings of hopelessness, self-destructive thoughts, anger and aggression while under stress, you know, just a kind of a tiredness, lack of motivation, Inability to finish tasks, rage. High dopamine can be like high motive, like you, you know, high normal, like focused, high motivation. Um, you know, a, a lot of people that have been to you know a, a graduate school or like you know have just uh, have, can focus for a long time or you know very like really much enjoy learning. That's a, a dopamine driven. Um, Exercise, I would say. So, and dopamine, okay, so the, the building blocks for do, dopamine are tyrosine and phenylalanine. But there's also, so a lot of times, tyrosine and phenylalanine can really uh, help somebody's focus. And, and maybe for like, you know, a couple hours or something. And again, Andrew Huberman has better podcasts on this about how to kind of play around with these supplements if that's what you're trying to do. But tyrosine would be the main one for dopamine. Phenylalanine is another one. Another one's macuna. Um, I think it's macuna purins, but it's uh, it's red ve- from red velvet bean, and it's like it's basically a natural, basically version of L-dopa. Um, and I've heard that there can be more of a crash afterward. I haven't really seen that with the supplement that I use. I use one called Dopatone, but I'll also use even like for kids sometimes a spray that has tyrosine and phenylalanine and, and B6 um, and just some gentle support. Or I've gotten kids to be able to come off their anti, their like ADHD medication by giving them tyrosine and kind of, you know, supporting their gut health and supporting their B vitamins and things like that. So I think that dopamine is one that really is clinically something that you can uh, focus on or, or kind of try to tweak or modulate or find the magic dosage. I one time had a patient who was in high school and they came to me and we did a lab test and he had depression, basically depression, low motivation, uh, just kind of lack of drive. And it was kind of sudden onset and kind of new and, and, you know, he just didn't want to be on a medication. So they came to me, we did some labs, we started on some stuff and like after the first consult, they came back in and I said, okay, tell me about what's changed. And they're like, we've seen no change. So as a practitioner, it's like, oh crap, you know, um, but you go back to the drawing board, and we knew the targets that we were aiming at, so we did not change the targets that we were aiming at. You know, it wasn't like we were headed east and we needed to be headed, heading west, but we switched up some of the dosaging, we switched up some of the timing, and the next consult, they came in and they said, okay, now we've noticed a huge change. And long story short, he was able to come off his medication, and he went away to college, and he stayed on that dosage for a really, really long time. And if things changed, he would up. And if things got better, he would down. And he just got to know how to control and modulate some of his neurotransmitter activity, whether it be from genetics or, or whatever the case is. So I think that that's uh, you know, just a really good 
example that just kind of popped into my head, but I always tell that example because we don't always get it right the first time. Um, but we, it doesn't mean that we're aiming at the wrong target. It just means we haven't, we haven't, you know, gotten there yet. One of my mentors says, if you're following a trail of breadcrumbs through the woods, sometimes you look up and you're still in the woods, but you've got to keep following the trail of breadcrumbs, which is the trail of clues. So the next one is GABA. Um, and that's the last one I'm going to talk about. I'm not going to talk about epinephrine and norepinephrine. They're the stress ones. We already kind of touched on that. And there are symptoms of low uh, epinephrine and norepinephrine. And, and I'll just go through those real quick, I guess, before we get to GABA. It's like, it, it, and sometimes I've seen this with chronic fatigue, um, but like a decrease in mental alertness, a decrease in mental speed, a decrease in concentration, just chronic fatigue and like stimulants or stimulation is the only thing that can keep the brain going is if there's like epinephrine and norepinephrine kind of flooding, like just from an adrenaline standpoint. And sometimes that could be a dopamine beta hydroxylase thing. There could be other mechanisms for that too. Uh, You know, uh, all the other things that, that we talk about, you know, just head traumas or mold toxicity or neurotoxins or whatever the, the case is. Um, but they're, uh, adrenaline, more often than not, we're worried about too much of it and too much stimulation, too much stress, a chronic enduring stress response. And maybe some of those receptors just kind of getting burned out of like, well, I'm tired and my brain fatigues easily. And like if it's not stimulated, it wants to shut down and go to bed. Uh, sometimes that's just from sensitization over time. But GABA, I think, is really, really important, you know, from a clinical standpoint and just growing to be more important too. Um, GABA is the calming neurotransmitter. So a lot of people have too much excitement, too much stimulation, and too much what's called glutamate, which is the, uh, the opposite of GABA, kind of like the gas pedal, and, and, and NMDA activation, which is a N-methyl, N-D-methyl aspartate uh, receptor. Um, and like aspartame and things, uh, MSG and food dyes and a lot of chemicals can trigger this neuro excitation. So when neurons get excited, that means they get triggered and they get excited and they start fire, 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 firing. And so a lot of people, they just, they're, they, they, they kind of relate to that. They're like, yeah, that's me. My neurons are firing. Um, and it's not necessarily stress and adrenaline, like somebody jumped out of a closet and scared you and your hair standing up on end. It's like I'm sitting still and I'm chill, but my brain and my nervous system have not calmed down. And that is GABA and, and reduced GABA activity. And there's many things that cause this. So I think that that's why one of the reasons why this is more clinically relevant, like mold is no, like mycotoxins cause glutamate buildup. Um, I think that, you know, some like stress hormones and mast cell activation and different things like that can also trigger neuro excitation. The kynurenine pathway that I mentioned is very much involved in this neuro excitation and NMDA activation. And then again, the food dyes, the MSG, and just, uh, just an increase of high stress and anxiety like the neurons are just firing in the threshold the threshold for many people's neurons is lower meaning it's easier to get that nervous system activated and there's again that sensitization concept but gaba 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 is very important 
Now, one of the things with GABA that I think is really important is talking about the blood-brain barrier. And, and I'll tell you, this is controversial for sure because like Karazian will say uh, that GABA is too big, meaning taking GABA as a supplement is too large by like molecular size, too large to cross the blood-brain barrier. So there, there's a, a, something out there called the GABA challenge test, meaning if you take GABA and it calms you down, it's a sign that you have a leaky blood-brain barrier. But GABA, you can give people GABA and, and you know, it will calm them down. It will calm you know, a certain percentage of people down. And I don't know that that means that everybody has a leaky blood-brain barrier. There's also liposomal GABA. But you can give GABA to a kid and it will calm them down like noticeably. We d- I've done it to my four-year-old. There has been times, I may have told this on the podcast before, I forget, but the, the, the first time that this ever happened, my, I came home and my, my kid was three and my wife was like, something's wrong with your son. He is acting drunk. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And he was, he was being insane. And we realized that he'd had a red like lollipop or something. And it, we notice it multiple times now, but it makes him go crazy and he knows it. So if we're like driving through the bank and they want to give him a lollipop, he's like, red, and we don't, we don't let him have it, but he tries to sneak it because he knows it makes him crazy hyper. He's four now. But we've given him GABA, and it will calm him down in like 15 minutes, liposomal GABA. Now, there's also things that you can do for the GABA receptors, and that's more frequently what I do. Things like uh, lithium helps GABA receptors, lithium orotate, uh, L-theanine, passion flower valerian root, those are things that can modulate GABA receptors. Things like benzodiazepines like Xanax and Ativan and lorazepam, those modulate GABA receptors and can permanently affect GABA receptors also. But GABA receptors can be, again, modulated through certain nutraceuticals. I think I also even have a YouTube video about a study about different essential oils that work on the GABAergic system. And it's like almost all of them, you know, that have have like a calming effect or have, you know, I don't know, most of the ones that people have in their house have some effect on GABAergic system. So there's all kinds of nutraceuticals and, and herbs and oils that work on GABA and calm the nervous system. So some of the symptoms, again, are feeling of nervousness or panic feeling of dread, feeling of knot in your stomach, sometimes even stiffness or pain. I'll often see people, let's say they have neuro, neuro, neuropathic pain of some kind, and they let's say they want to get off their medication. Well, what is it usually? It's usually gabapentin. If it's nerve pain or they've got you know some kind of brain pain of some kind, pregabalin or gabapentin are, are commonly the symptoms. There's uh, stiff person syndrome, is uh, autoimmunity against what's called the GAD65 enzyme, which converts glutamate into GABA. And that's glu- sometimes gluten can drive that and other things can drive that. So uh, there's a lot of things that can be affecting GABA and a decrease of GABA. Um, so anyway, going back to even some of the symptoms, a restless mind, an inability to turn off your mind, you know, trying to relax and not being able to is not always just like cortisol and th- it's, it's sometimes GABA and not enough GABA to calm that nervous system down. A worry over things that you've never thought of before, a feeling of a kind of inner tension and just like your nervous system feels stimulated 
and it feels like you can't calm down. So I, I've talked about several neurotransmitters that could be contributing to that. You have too much epinephrine and norepinephrine. Uh, that's too much stress, too much adrenaline. That's for sure part of it. But then it's also on the on the brake pedal side of things, it's not enough GABA or maybe not enough acetylcholine for your vagus nerve. Your vagus nerve is activating the parasympathetic nervous system. So let's say you try something like, try something for GABA support and try vagus nerve stimulation and see if that works. Now, if you don't feel like vagus nerve stimulation is working, then maybe you need acetylcholine or if you're having you know, brain fog or memory loss or things like that, then maybe you have other signs that you need acetylcholine. But a lot of times these neurotransmitter supports over time especially can can help you know balance things out if you're doing other things again like vagus nerve or gut work or you know meditation or circadian rhythms or you know whatever the case is to also support you got to stack the scale in your favor you can't rely on something just like a GABA support or 5-HTP supplement or B6 or something you've got to do uh, a multi multi layered approach. So anyway, that's uh, it, that's neurotransmitters. That's part of our brain overview or like four part series on brain health and kind of how to support your brain. The next one's going to be brain regions, which is also cool because when you understand some of these brain regions, then you understand a little bit more about your mechanisms or what could be going on or what could be supporting you know your symptoms, whether it be panic or fear or vertigo, or anxiety in crowded places versus, uh, you know, motion sickness in a car versus, uh, you know, PTSD when you drive down a street where you got a car accident and like understanding what some of that activation is doing and what you can do again to support your brain. And then the last one, we're going to talk about solutions, which today, again, we already talked about some of the supplemental things that can build these neurotransmitters. But we're going to tie this together with knowing what your priorities are and continuing to talk about how you can support your brain. So leave a rating, leave a review, share it with somebody that has a brain. Um, and yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Talk to you next time. Bye. I'm back. I forgot to add one thing and I want to go through it because I talked about it at the beginning. So I'm going to go through it real quick. It's probably going to take about five minutes. This is a way to evaluate this in kids. So I think that this is really cool. So, uh, you know, hopefully you stuck around for this. And it's a way to, uh, like, it's Winnie the Pooh, basically. It's Winnie the Pooh and talking about different symptoms and how you can evaluate this in kids or show it to kids. So I'm going to go through each one of them. Each character from Winnie the Pooh is a different, like, neurotransmitter and different functions. So first off, Winnie the Pooh, Pooh. Pooh is inattentive with his head in the clouds. So consider his entire cortex, like just neurotransmitter support. So it could be he needs fish oil and DHA. It could be that he has gluten issues. It could be that he needs methyl donors, but that's poo. So if you have a kid that's like inattentive with their head in the clouds, it might be dopamine, it might be acetylcholine, but just consider general neurotransmitter support or DHA or gluten. Tigger is hyperactive and bouncy. Consider mechanisms related to GABA. GABA can also be triggered by gluten and casein. So consider gluteomorphin and casomorphin responses. Those uh, gluten and dairy can trigger an opioid-like response. 
that can be excitatory, and then somebody would have GABA type symptoms, like you know, like my son. Um, Eeyore is depressed, as are about twenty five percent of children with ADHD. Consider deficiencies of serotonin, dopamine, and acetylcholine, and make sure his or her brain has sources of DHA and omegas. So Eeyore's going to be sad. Tigger's going to be bouncy. Pooh's just kind of like la, 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 la. Uh, so far, I've got like all my kids are a little bit of each of these. So I always think about this with my kids for sure. Piglet. Piglet is anxious and easily startled and uh, like a little bit fear-based. So consider mechanisms related to GABA. Consider gluteomorphin and casomorphin. Rabbit is inflexible rigid and wants his way. Consider dopamine deficiency mechanisms. My kids are basically all of that except probably not really Piglet. Um, some, sometimes they're inflexible. Sometimes they're certainly Tigger. Uh, one of them is very Pooh-like. They're never really Eeyore, but you know, if you've got enough kids, they're probably a little bit of all of these. But I think the point of this is if there's a problem, like I don't really think any either any of my kids have have neurotransmitter problems with with the exception of maybe my son with the GABA sometimes. But uh, I think when somebody has like this all the time, they're really just Eeyore all the time or they're really like uncontrollably Tigger all the time. I will use this with parents when they come in and they'll and they'll relate to this and we'll kind of work our way backwards to see like, okay, is there a gluten or dairy response? Is there, you know, some gut work that we need to do? Or can we modulate some of these neurotransmitters with like sometimes even sprays or powders if they're really young kids? We're trying to figure out ways that we can safely and smartly try to modulate these neurotransmitters to see if there's an effect. So I wanted to add that. It took three and a half minutes, so hope you stuck around for that. But uh, that's the Winnie the Pooh of kids' neurotransmitters and kids' brain function. I'm sure I'll talk about it again uh, in the fourth episode of this series when we talk about brain solutions. So thanks. See ya.